Our message this morning is entitled, The Dead Are Raised, and will be a continuation of our study together through the list of miracles that Jesus reported to the disciples of John the Baptist as they came to inquire to him as to whether or not he was the Christ in Matthew chapter 11 and also in Luke chapter 7. Just to refer back to the context of what we're studying together, we'll read Matthew 11 verses 1 through 6 together once again. And it came to pass when Jesus had made an end of commanding his 12 disciples, he departed thence to teach and to preach in their cities. Now when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and show John again those things which you do see and hear. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached unto them. And blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. I think it's important to hear the word of God read the same portions of the Word of God read over and over, and I hope that by the time we get done with our short series together through this list of miracles, not only will you be familiar with the types of miracles that Jesus performed in his life and what that meant to the world around him and also to us, but I hope that you're familiar with this portion of the Word of God. I hope that it's familiar so that if you ever hear it quoted, if you ever hear it read, you'll certainly know and be familiar with and recognize the passage that is presented to you. As Jesus said, go and show John again. In a day when we're constantly bombarded with opposition to the word, in a day in which we're constantly bombarded with unbelief and challenges to our faith, I think it's important to hear again and again and again that the Lord made the blind to see the lame to walk, the deaf to hear, that he cleansed the lepers, that he raised the dead, and that the poor have had the gospel preached unto them. And as Jesus ends this paragraph, blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. Would to God that we would not be offended in him, but that we would boldly proclaim our faith in him and his word to the world around us. We've considered together four other types of miracles as we read through that list. You might remember the messages that came from them. We looked at the blind receiving their sight. We looked at the lame walking, Jesus' healing of those who had been paralyzed, quadriplegics, paraplegics, those with withered limbs. We considered the cleansing of lepers, that terrible terrible affliction upon ancient man in a day with no ointments and a day with at least no antibiotic ointments or steroids and no antibiotics to take simple infections could result in the loss of a person's life back in that day. And we considered Jesus cleansing of the lepers. And last week we considered together Jesus opening the ears of those that are deaf. And we concluded that message with the words of Christ that he so often spoke in his ministry, how blessed it is to have ears to hear not only in an audible sense, but also to have that spiritual ear to hear, which is faith, which is a product of being born of the Spirit of God. 
Today we come to one of the most marvelous miracles that Jesus performed in his life, one that is so important and so significant, the raising of the dead. As we consider Jesus resurrecting the dead, giving life to those that have died, this miracle, even perhaps more than the others that we've considered together, reveal that Jesus is not only the creator, but also the Lord manifest in the flesh. Now, there were people in the Old Testament, prophets, Elijah, for instance, who God used, who answered, God answered his prayer and raised the dead. You remember that one time Elijah came to a widow's house and her little boy died and Elijah lays down on top of the boy three times and prays and almost stretches out in the form of a cross over him and begs God and God restores the life to that young man. And certainly the apostles, as people died in their presence, would from time to time, when God answered that prayer, they would raise the dead. But I want you to understand today that we're not reading of one who's merely prayed to God and asked God to raise the dead, but we're reading of about the one today who, by his own power, by his voice, speaks to the dead, and the dead come to life. And so this is significant, and I love that Jesus puts this at the end of his list, because in a sense it can be rather climactic, and he works to this final physical miracle that he shares in this list to the disciples of John the Baptist that come inquiring, art thou he that should come, that Jesus the Messiah has even raised the dead, those who were physically deceased, those who had no life in them, as we'll see today, even bodies that had been deceased for more than four days, Jesus comes to that person and Jesus resurrects that person when they were Dead. This happens purely because Jesus wills it to be so. Or perhaps worded a different way, Jesus does this at will. If we were to pray to God to raise the dead, and there have been times maybe immediately when a person's life has been lost, that perhaps in an emergency room, perhaps in a hospital, that there are things that can be done to intervene. Maybe you shock them back to life. Maybe you give them a, a shot in the heart of adrenaline to start that organ pumping again. We beg God that he would intervene, but Jesus simply raises the dead at will. When he wants to do it, he does it. Why? Because he is the sovereign creator and the Lord of heaven and earth. And he does what he wants when he wants he is the God of all creation. And so this reveals to us Jesus is the creator, the one that formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, is the one that can raise our bodies back from the dirt. When we return to dust, he can raise our bodies once again. Now, I don't know the theological significance of that, but just... Allow me to engage in a tangent for just a moment. If you read the Genesis account, and I think we referred to this once previously in our study together through these miracles, when God creates, how does he do that? He simply speaks. The voice of Christ will come into our message today as we talk about how he raised 
people from the dead. How did he make Adam? Did he create Adam by speaking him into existence? No, he formed him out of the dust of the ground. Now you may say, all right, you have me on the edge of my seat. What does that mean? Don't know that I could tell you, but I know that it's different than all of the other types of creating that God did in the beginning of time. He created man from the dust of the ground. He has power and sovereign authority over man. While we are made in the image of God and the, the special creation, the pinnacle of God's created beings here in this world, we are not sovereign. In Him we live and move and have our being. He has power over us. He has dominion over us. We are His creatures. And He can raise our dead bodies at will. As we introduce the thought of resurrections today, I have four points that I want to get to before we eventually look at two examples from Jesus' personal ministry of raising the dead. Number one, studying resurrections in the Bible gives us insight into a couple of biblical concepts that are significant and important to us theologically as Christians. Now, what two theological concepts would this be? First of all, the new birth, second of all, the resurrection from the dead. At the last day when Christ returns again, the second coming of Christ, when he descends from heaven with a shout with the voice of the archangel, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. We which are alive and remain shall not prevent or go before them which are raised, but we will be called up in the air to join those that are resurrected in that last day. We know that all the dead shall be raised. We know at that last day, according to 2 Peter chapter 3, listen to me, the world will be burned by fire. When Jesus comes again, the universe will be melted into oblivion. It will not be here after that moment. We don't look for a renovated, sin-cursed earth. Praise God, this place is going to be gone. As much as I love this creation, as much as it's beautiful... I look around and I know that everything that we see in this universe is marred and cursed with sin. And so he will take it away. It waxes old as does a garment and he will put it away. And when he does, we know that we anticipate a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. There will be no unrighteousness in that day. And as beautiful and marvelous as this creation is, I believe it will pale in comparison to what God has in store for them that love him in that day. And that is the second coming that will take place when Jesus comes again, the day of the Lord. He comes back and he raises the dead. He glorifies his people. He judges his enemies and he destroys the world. Studying resurrections gives us insight into those concepts because they're connected and we'll see how they're connected in just a moment. In the book of John chapter five, Jesus Preaching here says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me, listen carefully, hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. There are a lot of people in the world who would like that to say, He that heareth my word and believes on him will have everlasting life. But that is not what that says. Read it legalistically rigid. Read exactly what it says. He that heareth and believeth hath life. Last week we studied the amazing statement of Jesus. 
He that hath an ear to hear, let him hear. Unless we've been born of God, we have no ear to hear. God quickens us. He gives unto us eternal life. He's the author and finisher of our faith. This everlasting life enables us to hear his word and to believe on him who sent him. Why do we believe? Look at the last phrase in verse 24. Because we are passed from death unto life. <clears throat> Verse 25. Verily, verily, I say unto you. Jesus gets more specific with what he's talking about here. And remember, our subject today is that of a resurrection. Resurrecting. The resurrection power of Christ. The hour is coming. And now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. What is that? That is a resurrection. Now, you and I might be thinking as we read this for the first time, if this is the first time you've ever read this passage, that sounds like the resurrection at the end of time, right? It's kind of what it sounds like. But Jesus would go on to say in verse 28, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all that are in the graves shall hear his voice. Now read very carefully verse 25. The hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. That phrase, the hour is coming and now is, has reference to things that were taking place then when he spoke and would be taking place throughout the future. And anytime you read that idiom, that figure of speech, that's what that means. Something that's happening now and something that's happening throughout the future. Well, might I just ask the question, for the last 2,000 years, have, been, have people been coming to life? In one sense, no. In a physical sense, have you gone, walked around Maple Hill Cemetery and seen hands coming out of the ground? What an amazing thing that would be to work in the morgues of hospitals or the funeral homes of this world. That is such a heartbreaking line of work to do, but such a necessary line of work to care for those that are grieving and to take care of the remains of their loved ones. But imagine how interesting that would be if God continuously raised those who were physically dead from that moment all through the future. Is that what Jesus meant? No. Jesus has reference to the resurrection that allows you to hear his word and believe on him. What resurrection is that? That resurrection is the new birth. When you are born from above. When you receive physical life. When you were conceived. When you were born into this world. There, there's amazing things that happen to you when you are alive. You grow. You develop. You have organs that develop in the womb and even though you're not able to physically eat, you need nutrients. And so you have an umbilical cord that puts the nutrients, the oxygen, the calories that you need through your body. As you're born into this world, you begin to hunger and you begin to thirst. And so God designed your mother in such a way to provide for you the nutrients that you need. And it's amazing. We have five children and... Not a one of them had to learn to be hungry. But they come into the world wanting something to eat, instinctively knowing how to nurse 
You don't have to teach them how to nurse. No, they need they need to latch on a few times to learn how to do that, and we understand that, but they instinctively know, I need to eat, and God designed us in a way to where we instinctively do that. All of this, why? Hungering, thirsting, crying, growing, waking, sleeping, all of this because they're alive. The Bible uses the analogy of a birth to convey something to us about salvation. When God comes into your life, when you were dead in trespasses and in sins, and all of a sudden the spirit of his son is sent into your heart crying, Abba, Father, you are regenerated, you are quickened, you are born again. All of a sudden there is a nature within you that you never had before. Just like that baby hungers and thirsts after righteousness, you do hunger and thirst for God. Your heart begins to cry out to him, Abba, Father, the way a, a young baby cries out for his or her mother in the middle of the night when he's hungry, when he's scared, when he's alone. We have life, and that life precedes action. He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life, and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. If you believe and you hear his word, you have life. That life enabled it. Just like the baby's life enables it to nurse and cry. You have passed from death unto life. Not a physical death to a physical life. But a spiritual death in trespasses and in sins. To a life in Christ. By his sovereign grace. And then Jesus in verse 25 says the hour is coming and now is. It was happening then. It will happen all through the future. When the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God. And they that hear shall live. What brought you to life? It was the voice of the Son of God. It was the voice of the Son of God. Jesus speaks and the dead come to life. What are we going to see today? Jesus speaks and the dead come to life. As we study Jesus resurrecting people, I want you to understand how this applies to even your individual personal salvation. Jesus has spoken to your dead soul. Live and your soul came to life. Now this is a mystery and there are parts of this I was discussing with a preacher friend of mine this week that we don't fully understand, but I do know this. I know that after the new birth, there's no other change that we read of in Scripture to the soul of a man in that person's existence that changes it in a way more suitable to stand before God. In other words... When you die, there's no other change upon the soul mentioned in Scripture. When your body dies, your soul immediately goes to be with God. Understand, that which is sinful cannot stand before God. If we were to go and stand before God, and I mean just our soul were to be in the presence of God, in our sinful condition, you're, you're talking about judgment, you're talking about punishment, you're talking about exile. That's why when Adam sinned, he was driven from the presence of God. And yet, at death, the soul immediately goes to be with God. I want you to understand this vital, crucial, necessary change to the soul. 
And every single heir of promise will be regenerated, quick and born again by the immediate working of the Holy Spirit sometime between their conception and death. And that is a resurrection, purely by the voice of the Son of God. But there's another resurrection here in this chapter. We read of it in verse 28. Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave shall hear His voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. Now you might be thinking, Pastor, the Bible says that salvation is by grace. What then does this mean? They that have done good, they that have done evil. If you have any goodness in you, it was put there by Christ. And I will also say that the new birth makes a difference in a person's life. They are not the same after than they were before. Those that have done evil, without the new birth... That is all they have ever done. Without Christ, all we have done is evil. There is no goodness without Christ. Jesus said that to the rich young ruler. Why callest thou me good? There is none good but God. Who takes up residence in your heart at the new birth? God. And so any goodness that we do, we do through Christ in us, the hope of glory. I will point out from verse 28 and 29 that the resurrections of the righteous and wicked are simultaneous. God raises the righteous at the exact same moment that he raises the wicked. Why is that important? There is no room in this verse for the resurrection of the righteous preceding the resurrection of the wicked by a thousand years. In the same day, in the same hour, all that are in the grave shall hear his voice and come forth. And they come forth to one of two resurrections, the resurrection of life or the resurrection of damnation. Now, comforting thought as we think about this, I recently saw a news story about a man who was recovered after being frozen in the ice for thousands of years. And that's always interesting to me. And the way that they make him look, you know, they dig him out of the ground and he looks like something off the walking dead or maybe a, a mummy from Egypt. He doesn't quite look human and it's not quite the most pleasant mental image and certainly not the most pleasant thing to look at. And I can only imagine what it's like to be in the room with him. But they dig him up out of the ice and they begin to recreate what he looked like. And he always looks like some sort of a prehistoric caveman. And, you know, he might have the same bone structure we have, but they're certain he looked like a prehistoric caveman. The thought occurred to me as I was reading a news story about one such occurrence as that. No one knows anything about it. Think about that for a minute. We, we have a society full of people who were not alive 120 years ago. A hundred years from now, no one in this room, more than likely, will be alive. Think of the billions and billions of people who have lived in this world. No one knows their name. No one knows their parents. No one knows their children. No one knows their story. No one knows what they did for a living. They are lost to time. 
That's humbling, isn't it? To know all the things that I do, all the things that I work for, all the things that I have sought out to accomplish, none of it, none of it matters in 200 years, 500 years, 1,000 years, 5,000 years in the eyes of human society. We have our occasional rare exceptions, your George Washingtons, your Abraham Lincolns, and we know them and we remember them and we put up monuments to them. There are people that we know through history, but the overwhelming majority of people we know nothing about, no one knows anything about. They have faded into obscurity in our minds, even oblivion. Here's the comforting thought. God knows every single one of them. And as you read in this passage, every single one of them that belonged unto him will come forth to the resurrection of life. And I hope that that thought is a comforting epiphany to you. Now, point number two, as we consider just general resurrection the theology, all resurrections are contingent upon the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. His is the resurrection of resurrections. He is the firstborn from the dead, according to, I believe, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 18. According to Romans chapter 8, he is the firstborn among many brethren. The firstborn among many brethren, and I believe that that... Reference there has reference to his resurrection. We are born from the dead, as it were. Scripture uses sometimes that word begotten to have reference to a resurrection. Thou art my beloved son, this day have I begotten thee. Psalm 2, not having reference to Jesus' incarnation, but his resurrection. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead among many brethren. His resurrection is the re uh, resurrection that matters, the resurrection that counts. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as Paul writes and confronts heresy in the church at Corinth, there were people there who taught that there was no resurrection. There were two variations of this heresy in the first century. One taught that there was no resurrection. The second taught that the resurrection was past already. That's an extreme view of preterism, which is a very dangerous idea when taken to an extreme, I might add. If there be no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain. And your faith is also vain. Vain meaning done in vain, meaning no point to it. Yea, and we are found false witnesses of God. We're liars. If the dead rise not, then was Jesus not raised. If Jesus was not raised then everything we do is meaningless and pointless. Because we testified that He raised up Christ, whom He raised not up, if so be that the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is vain. Ye are yet in your sins. See how important that resurrection of Christ is. But at the same time, how the resurrection of Christ is connected to every other resurrection in the Word of God. These concepts are connected. And Jesus' words to the sister of Lazarus in John chapter 11, which we hope to get to momentarily, 
when they began to talk to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And that's certainly true. No one ever died in the presence of Jesus. But we'll see why that situation played itself out as it did in John 11 as we get there. Jesus' words to her were, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Every other resurrection is contingent upon the resurrection of Jesus. Number three, Jesus' resurrection proves his deity, his divinity. Romans chapter 1 and verse 4. Let's back up to verse 3. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. We know that Jesus is the Christ because Jesus rose again. And if Jesus rose again, then every single one of you will rise again as well. And we'll talk about that from a perspective of assurance as we get to the case of Lazarus. Lord willing, if we have time. Now, in Jesus' day, point number four, there were two large factions of the Jews, theologically speaking, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees were more conservative and while their theology in many cases was more sound, Jesus described them as a generation of vipers. In Matthew chapter 23, he described them as whited sepulchers full of dead men's bones. He described them as cups that were clean on the outside, full of extortion and excess filth and disgustingness on the inside. They made an outward show of religion. Their hearts not only were far from him, their hearts cared nothing for him because they were dead in their sins. However, their theology was more sound. But there was another group in Jesus' day, the Sadducees, and they did not believe in the resurrection at all. And so in Matthew 22, you can read here on your own time, Matthew 22, beginning in verse 23, you have interactions with Jesus, between Jesus and the Sadducees who came to tempt him and ask him questions. And they would do this on a number of occasions. If a woman marries a man and he dies and then she belongs to his brother and he dies and so on and so forth so that she marries like five brothers and the only thing I'm thinking is poor woman. Five husbands that you didn't even get a new set of in-laws you know, after the whole fiasco. And they ask him, Who's, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? And Jesus said, you err, neither knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. You'll find most Errors in understanding spring from one of those two sources. They understand not the Scriptures nor the power of God. And Jesus tells them that in the resurrection, we're neither married nor given in marriage, but we are as the angels of God. That doesn't mean we're angels in the resurrection. No, we're redeemed sinners. Angels are not redeemed sinners. We're made in the image of God. We're the bride of Christ. We're raised in the image of Jesus but we are as the angels in the sense that we're neither married nor given in marriage. Now, why is that important? Well, one of the fastest growing, if not the fastest growing erroneous religious group in America today teaches that you can get married in one of their facilities and keep their religion. And you can, in the resurrection, become a deity with your wife and the two of you can rule your own creation together. In the resurrection, they're neither married nor given in marriage. 
We're not married to one another in the resurrection. What is it that the preacher usually says as he joins two together in holy matrimony? Until death do you part. Until death do you part. Marriage is an institution that God created for this world, and death severs that. Tragic as it is. Sad from our perspective, death severs that. And by the way, it's unbiblical to be married to two. Now, I know that there were a lot of polygamists in the Old Testament. God suffered that to be. But from the beginning, they twain shall be one. Does that mean there's no husband and no bride in heaven? Well, there's a husband and bride in heaven. You are the bride. And your husband is Jesus. Would you rather be married, you know, ask Sister Rachel, would you rather be married to Ben or would you rather be the bride of Christ? I can tell you which one we would all rather be, the bride of, the bride of Christ. Let's look at two examples of Jesus resurrecting and raising the dead in his personal ministry. He tells the disciples of John, the dead are raised. And these are two very lengthy, lengthy examples. And customarily the preface was more than 35 minutes. The first of these that we want to read is Jairus' daughter, Mark chapter 5, verses 22 through 43. We'll try to hit the high points of this and give you takeaways from each of these examples. Mark chapter 5, verse 22, Behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet, and he besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her, that she may be healed, and she shall live. This is very rare. Now, people came to Jesus wanting miracles all the time, but this is no ordinary man. This is what? This is the ruler of the synagogue. This is the ruler of the synagogue. Our church order bears a striking resemblance to that of the first century synagogue. You had an elder, a ruler of the synagogue. What word does the Apostle Paul use in the book of Hebrews when he makes reference to the pastors of churches, the elders in Hebrews chapter 13? The elders that what? That rule. The ruler of the synagogue means the person who runs the service, the person who introduces, the person who calls on someone to speak, the person who calls on someone to pray, the person who reads the word of God or calls upon another person to read the word of God. It was very rare for religious authorities to come to Jesus in the first century. The two large factions both were opposed to him, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And then this man, Jairus, he knows something about Jesus and he comes to him and he begs him greatly that his little daughter is dying and he asks the Lord to heal his little girl. Now, as far as little daughter, in verse 42... At the end of this story, this girl was the age of 12. So she was 12 years old. His little daughter, his little 12-year-old daughter lay dying. He begs Jesus, besought him greatly. Don't read over that as if it's insignificant. He's begging him. There's a show. There's a scene. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her that she may be healed and she shall live. 
Jesus went with him and much people followed him and thronged him. And that word there means that there are so many people that they can't even move and travel through. People are touching him. Everyone's bouncing off him. People are groveling at him. They're grabbing him. They're grabbing his clothing. They're touching him. Jesus, passing through the crowd, a certain woman, which had an issue of blood 12 years. Now, this is a point of interesting irony. How old was Jairus' daughter? 12 years old. How long had this other woman been suffering with the issue of blood? 12 years old. What's the significance? Well, 12 is a biblical number of completion, but whatever that is, you know, I'm not the world's greatest type and shadow preacher that sees things with great imagination and makes interesting spiritual lessons up from that which I read, but I do find it to be an incredible case of irony. One woman has been suffering this long. Here, a little girl at the same age is dying. Perhaps one point is that regardless of the affliction, regardless of the length of suffering, we're all suffering together in one way or another, and this world is full of complete suffering. The answer to all suffering is the Lord Jesus. A certain woman which had an issue of blood 12 years had suffered many things of the physicians and had spent all that she had and was nothing bettered but rather grew worse. Now this illness, without describing it too greatly, it was one that would be debilitating. It would be exhausting if any of you have ever had any sort of issue where you became anemic, you know how exhausting it is to be an anemic person. She would have struggled with anemia. Beyond that, religiously, according to the book of Leviticus 15, verse 25, a woman with an issue of blood was ceremonially unclean. Remember when we talked about the ceremonial law and how a leper was considered ceremonially unclean, where he could not come into the temple, he could not present his offering unto God. He had to be separate from the nation of Israel in a religious sense. Well, so it is with this woman. She was unable to worship. And my heart just goes out for her as she suffered many things of many physicians. Have you ever known someone to suffer many things from many physicians? And they're trying their best, their best, but it doesn't work. There's just no help. This woman knows that if I can only be with Jesus, he can heal me. Now, remember, this is a parenthetical statement in what Jesus is doing. Where's he going? He's going to raise her, at this point, to heal Jairus' daughter. He would eventually raise her from the dead. Now, there are spiritual takeaways all in this. He looks late by the time he gets there because of this detour, because of this sidetrack. You could... Take the lesson from this that it doesn't matter how busy you think Jesus is. He always has room. He always has time. He always wants to hear from you. Whether you're the woman with the issue or you are J. Iris and his daughter, Jesus always has care for you. This woman comes up to him and she touches his garment. For she said, if I may touch but his clothes. In another gospel account, it's the hem of his garment. I shall be whole. She touches his clothing and straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of the plague. Whatever was the cause of that immediately stopped. Her anemia was 
taken care of. She felt energetic. She felt healed. And you can imagine the euphoria that would come over in a moment such as that. Jesus immediately knowing that virtue had gone out of him. Now, virtue many times means moral excellence. Here, it means power. Power had gone out of him. Turned him about in the press and said, who touched my clothes? Now, he knew. He knew. But Jesus does things like this so we know that he knows and so we know what he knows. He's always teaching. Who touched my clothes? The disciples said unto him, Thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou who touched me? These guys. Sometimes you just want to stop them and say, Hey, what are you thinking? He looked round about to see her that had done this thing, but the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, came and fell down before him and told him all the truth. Now, what does he say to her? Verse 34. Don't touch me again. Now, that's not what he said. Thy, he says unto her, Daughter, thy faith has made thee whole. Go in peace and be whole of thy plague. Thy faith has made thee whole, daughter. How does Jesus describe this little woman who came trembling with her illness? Daughter. Do you think he merely had reference to being a daughter of Jacob? No. Daughter of Adam? No. This is one of his beloved children. And her faith had made her whole. How? From the illness. Made her whole from the illness. Now, while all of this is taking place, verse 35, there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house certain which said, Thy daughter is dead. The worst words that any parent ever hear. These are the things that cause a, a mom or a dad to stay up late at night worrying. And the Psalms speak to this. It's, it's vain for you to stay up late and rise up early and eat the bread of sorrows. There's a time where we raise our children and we commit their trust to the Lord. And we say, I commend my children to you. Lord, take care of my children. And yet I think that all of us at times have stayed up late eating the bread of sorrows, as it were. These are the worst words that any of us could ever, ever hear. Look at the mentality of these people. Thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? That's too late. It's too late. He didn't make it there in time. Don't bother Jesus anymore. Praise God that Jesus was not concerned with his own inconvenience. There are takeaways in just about every verse of this narrative together. As soon as Jesus had heard the word that was spoken, he saith unto the ruler of the synagogue, Be not afraid, only believe. What is one of the most common things that Jesus said when people came to him? Believe. We read last week of the man whose boy was afflicted. And what did the man say to Jesus when Jesus said, Believe, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Be not afraid, only believe. He suffered no man to follow him, save Peter and James and John, the brother of James. 
How does Mark know about this? Mark was one who was one of Peter's yoke fellows in a similar way to how Timothy and Silas were always with Paul. Peter, James, and John go with Jesus. Come to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and they see the tumult, them that wept and wailed greatly. There's a scene. You can imagine what it would look like. Everyone's crying, disappointed. Their only hope was Jesus. Cometh to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and he walks in and he says, Why make ye this ado and weep? The damsel is not dead but sleepeth. Here's another takeaway. Death is but sleep. Now your soul does not sleep. Your soul returns to Christ. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But your body sleeps. Your body sleeps. Is it literally sleeping, breathing in the ground? No. But it's as temporary as your sleep last night was. Which for me, it was far too temporary. The damsel's asleep. They laughed him to scorn. When he had put them out, he pushes all of them out. One, because they laugh at him. They scorn him. Two, because this is an intimate scene between Jesus, Peter, James, John, a mama and a daddy and a deceased little girl. They entered in where the damsel was lying. He takes the damsel by the hand. He says unto her, Talitha kumai, which is being interpreted, damsel, I say unto thee, arise. See, his speech is involved in every one of these miracles. And straightway the damsel arose and walked, for she was the age of twelve, and they were astonished with a great astonishment. It literally blew their minds. Could not, could not believe it. He charged them straightly that no man should know it. What is the last thing that he does? Commanded that something should be given her to eat. Hungry people are alive. Living people are hungry. And you might be thinking, duh. After all, it's 1152. In a spiritual sense... Hungry people are alive. Living people are hungry. Once she's raised back from the dead, Jesus says, give her something to eat. Peter writes and tells us, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you might grow thereby. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, Jesus said in the Beatitudes. If you hunger, if you thirst, it is because you have been brought to spiritual life. What you need then to nourish your soul is the sincere milk of the Word, the Word of God. John chapter 11. Now this story takes 46 verses. Do not expect me to go through all 46 verses with six minutes remaining. We'll give you the summarized version. 
John 11, verse 1, a certain man was sick named Lazarus. Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. This is one of Jesus' dear friends. He was dying. He lay sick. Now, verse 2, you read the identity of this Mary. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Now, while you'd have that note, it was that Mary because there were multiple Marys in the gospel accounts. There were several, several women named Mary. And John is giving you the identity of this particular Mary. Therefore his sister sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. This tells you that there was a very close relationship between Jesus and Lazarus. This was a dear, dear friend to Jesus. Jesus loved him very much, and you better believe Lazarus loves Jesus. But he's laying there sick. Jesus here is a distance away from Lazarus, and he tarries. And I'll just give you the reason why, and this will explain the apostles' words. In John chapter 10, Jesus preaches publicly to unbelievers and says, I, You believe not because you're not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones to stone him. When the Jews take up stones to stone him, what does Jesus do? He escaped out of their hand, verse 39, went again, went away again beyond Jordan unto a place where John at first baptized, and there he abode and resorted unto him, many resorted unto him, and many believed on him. And that's when the sisters sinned for Jesus. There from Bethany, you know, on the outskirts of Jerusalem in Judea, there are two cities. Bethany and Bethphage. They're both places where figs are harvested. The last time Jesus was there, what did the Jews try to do? Well, they tried to stone him because he said, I and my father are one. And they understood that to mean that he was deity, that he was divine, that he was the second person of the Godhead, the son of God. And so he leaves that place because they're trying to kill him. Word comes to him. Jesus hears this, and he tells them, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. This sickness was to glorify God. Now, it was suffered. He intentionally tarried, and we can see some of God's workings with that sort of... Uh, Situation here in this, Jesus didn't go over there and give him the black plague. He suffered it to be. And then he tarried where he was. Why? For the glory of God. Because of what would take place in the life of Lazarus. The sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Jesus tells them, let's go there again. Let's go to Judea again. His disciples said, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou there again? 
Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of the world. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth, because there is no light in him. Typically responds with a parable. These things he said, after these things he said, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I might awake him out of sleep. And one of the disciples says, Lord, if he's asleep, he's doing well. If you're sick, what is it that you want to do? You want to sleep. When does your body heal? In sleep. But Jesus spake of his death. They thought that he had spoken of resting in sleep. Jesus said plainly unto them, Lazarus is dead. Lazarus is dead. Jesus tarried. You see that in verse 6. He abode two days where he was so that Lazarus would die. He suffered that to be. Why? So he could overrule it to his glory, point number one. Point number two, so they and we would believe. They make the journey there. Martha runs up to him, Lord, if you had only been here, if you'd only been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Listen to her faith. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. When's the resurrection? At the last day. Jesus saith unto her, I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection. I will raise him again. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, he shall live again. Whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Now, beloved believer, that is an assurance to you. You are assured from the word of God that you shall never die. She says, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God, which has come into the world. Now, Jesus goes into the place where Lazarus lay and will make this a shortened ending. He arrives at the tomb and everyone there is weeping and crying. And when Jesus sees this, Mary falls down at his feet and she cries. And she says the same thing. Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. He goes where they laid him and in verse 35, when Jesus sees the people there that are weeping for Lazarus, verse 35, Jesus wept. What a breathtaking passage of Scripture. Then said the Jews, Behold how he loved him. And again, Jesus groans within himself. You might wonder why Jesus weeps. Why does Jesus groan within himself? There's a few opinions on that. Some maybe think Jesus feels this way and weeps because Lazarus is now going to leave heaven. Some people believe it's because of the unbelief, which is a, a likely theory. But in the book of Hebrews chapter 4, we read that we have not a high priest which cannot be touched by the feeling of our infirmities. Jesus feels your weepings. When you grieve, Jesus is touched by the feeling of your infirmities. 
When you weep, he groans. As he comes here and he sees Mary and Martha, people that, whom he loves dearly, crying and weeping, he weeps with them. Romans chapter 12 would exhort us to the same, to rejoice with them that rejoice and weep with them that do weep. He mourns with us in our sorrows. Finally, verse 39. Take ye away the stone. It was in a cave. It was covered by a stone. He had been dead for more than four days now. And if you're familiar with decomposition, it's a very graphic, disgusting thing. Nobody wants to hear about it. In our modern 2019 American life, we're never exposed to it. But they were very familiar with that in this day. When that stone rolls away, the stench of death erupts from the tomb. You see, he rolled away the stone before he raised him from the dead. All the stench of death were there. This is an example. What are we before Christ? Before Christ comes into our heart, we are dead in trespasses and in sins. Our throat is an open sepulcher. Roll away the stone. The smell of death spreads around and Jesus begins to speak. He lifts up his eyes and he says, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heard me. And I knew that thou hearest me always, but because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they might believe that thou hast sent me. And with a loud voice he cried, Lazarus, come forth. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound with a napkin. And Jesus said, Loose him and let him go. By the way, we're in the loosening business here. Only Jesus can raise the dead. But I want to help you take as many of those grave clothes off of you as you can. I want you out of the, out of the tomb. I want you away from the fragrance of the death. I want you clothed. I want you healthy. I want you in your right mind. And I want you sitting at the feet of Jesus. Lazarus comes forth. And they believed on him. They believed on Jesus. What is the takeaway from that? What did Jesus do to raise Lazarus from the dead? He simply spoke. What does Jesus do to raise us from death and trespasses and in sins? He simply speaks. What will Jesus do in the last day? He will simply speak. And all of the dead shall come forth.